Welcome to another episode of In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Dishakarna Jani, a PhD candidate in history at Princeton University. In this episode, I sat down with Professor Emma Kuby, Associate Professor of History at Northern Illinois University. Her work focuses on the history of modern France and Western Europe, with an emphasis on the intellectual history of post-war France and debates over violence, colonialism, memory, and politics. Her new book, Political Survivors, The Resistance, The Cold War, and the Fight Against Concentration Camps, is out now from Cornell University Press, and traces how intellectual and former Buchenwald inmate David Rousset and the organization known as the International Commission Against the Concentration Camp Regime made claims about the authority of states and survivors to enact and obstruct violence. So could you tell us a little bit about the history that you're telling in this book and why, for example, uh, these actors of yours are termed political survivors? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, the book is about concentration camp survivors as political activists in the immediate post-war period. It's especially about the 1950s. And what I've I've done in the book is to unearth the history of a particular organization, um, a French-led but international collective of former resistance deportees to the Nazi camps. It was called the International Commission Against the Concentration Camp Regime, um, and usually was called by its its French acronym, the CICRC. This group has been totally forgotten today. It was quite important in its moment. it was founded in 1949 uh, by a French intellectual who had survived Buchenwald and Neuengamme. His name was David Rousset, and a number of other prominent survivors from throughout Western Europe uh, led the organization alongside him. So the group, th- their kind of premise was that they claimed that concentration camp-like forms of detention continued to exist in the post-war world. And so throughout the 1950s, they carried out this series of investigations of dehumanizing internment conditions uh, that might potentially be described as what the the, the word that they used was concentrationary um, in a number of places. Uh, So the USSR, Franco-Spain, Greece, China, and French Tunisia, and then French Algeria during the French Algerian War. Some of these were on the ground inquiries. Um, some of them were um, when they couldn't get on the ground access, they would hold a mock trial, um, a mock crimes against humanity trial. And I think it's probably worth saying um, just kind of upfront that none of this work was framed in terms of human rights. Uh, this was this all took place in a period before human rights had really crystallized as a kind of privileged discourse for stigmatizing state violence. And the CICRC very explicitly um, did not understand itself as a human rights NGO. Uh, it, it professed kind of indifference to what it called garden variety human rights abuses in regular prisons or run-of-the-mill internment camps. It strictly targeted concentration camps um, as this what members as survivors themselves saw as an incommensurable form of violence against the human subject um, as violating something beyond rights. So what political survivors does is it it traces the narrative arc of this group's life and death uh, from the late 40s into the early 60s. Um, And it shows how ultimately it it was the attempt to intervene in the Algerian war that destroyed the organization. And it destroyed it by undermining members' claims about the relationship between past and present and their claims about the authority of their own experience. So what I'm trying to do in the book, you know, I I think this group's history is fascinating for its own sake, um, but I am also trying to use the group's rise and fall to reveal some things about the ways that Europeans in the 1950s 
understood the, the global significance of their continent's recent violence, particularly as they grappled with the forms of violence involved in, in the Cold War and in decolonization. Um, the title Political Survivors actually emerged quite late in the game. It was not the book's original title, um, but I, I like it a lot because it captures two really essential things about the history that I relate in the book. Um, the first is that the CICRC described itself as an apolitical, you know, humanitarian organization. But in fact, and of course, it, its work was profoundly political. Um, and what its members were doing was making political meaning out of their experience in the Nazi camps. And specifically, um, because of the spotlight that the group shone on the Soviet Gulag, uh, the CICRC became deeply involved in the politics of the Cold War. Um, and in fact, it was eventually funded by the CIA. This was, by the way, this was something I only gradually realized in the course of my research. And so I'm, I'm happy to talk um, about what that process was like or how it, how it changed the, the project. So it became deeply involved in the Cold, in Cold War politics. It also became entangled with the politics of decolonization. So the book explores those political commitments um, and looks at that dynamic, not simply in, in terms of kind of looking at how the political commitments were informed by memory of World War II's violence, but also looking at, at, at that kind of vice versa relationship, how the ongoing politics shaped and reshaped the meanings that Europeans drew from the past um, by the early 60s. Okay, so that's the first sense in which um, the title captures something about the book. Um, the other way in which this book is about political survivors is that it the phrase captures the exclusion that was at the heart of this organization. All of the members of the CICRC deliberately, according to the group's formal policy, its constitution, um, had originally been non-Jewish uh, political or resistance deportees to the Nazi camps, as opposed to racial uh, victims of, of deportation, to use the kind of Nazi language about different reasons that, that people would be deported. So Jews were theoretically welcome to join if they had not been deported as Jews, if they had been deported as resistors. Um, and Jewish Holocaust survivors were involved in the CICRC in various ways um, around the margins um, and, and in ways that were actually quite central to its work. But racial victims were not permitted to join as formal members only people who have been deported for acts of resistance or political opposition. Um, in the minds of Europeans in the late 40s, early 50s, um, this was an unexceptional policy. Um, resistance deportees had an enormous amount of prestige in post-war Western Europe that Jewish racial deportees did not. Um, people understood those who had been deported for resistance activities as the key, the paradigmatic victims of Nazi violence. Um, so, a lot of what the book does is explore the implications and the consequences um, of that understanding um, of what Nazism's um, chief crime kind of was, um, and then what it tells us about um, how memory of Nazi violence could and couldn't be mobilized uh, for political purposes in the immediate post-war decades. Um, so, um, so yeah, so those are the two senses, I think, in which political survivors kind of functions uh, for me um, as a descriptive phrase about the, who this book is about. Mm -hmm. And so how did you come to this project? Did you sort of begin with those questions in mind or are you really starting <laughs> with this institution and then finding these questions as you explore this institution? How, how did you come to, to this kind of particular nexus of questions? Yeah, um, so um, 
definitely in through a process, right? Um, this was not, um, I, I, I didn't know, um, I didn't know the questions per se in, in advance. Um, the project was originally born a long time ago. Um, I took a, a Soviet history seminar um, with Peter Holquist in my second year of graduate school uh, at Cornell. Um, and um, people in the class were writing, you know, research papers. I, I think I was the only person who didn't have sort of language skills to do something with Russian sources. And That's so true. Peter Holquist said, oh, okay, you know, write me a paper about um, French responses, right, like French Cold War anti-communism, essentially. Uh, so I opened Tony Judd's Past Imperfect, and I found what was sort of literally a two-sentence passage um, about uh, a conflict that, that Jean-Paul Sartre had had with this guy, David Rousset, uh, about the Soviet Gulag. Um, and I decided to see what I could find out about it and, and wrote a research paper for Peter Holquist about that um, that moment. I th You know, I think... I went into that probably like assuming that I, I, I didn't know this history well yet at all. I, I probably was still assuming that Rousset was, you know, he was a concentration camp survivor, so he was Jewish, right? Um, and so I learned a lot through that project, but it was still, it was very much framed in terms of uh, Rousset, a polemic between Rousset and Sartre um, around Soviet violence. Um, and um, and so framed in Cold War terms. It only became a chapter in my dissertation. Uh, this this was not my dissertation project. Um, it was only after I was out of graduate school and began um, wrote an article for for an edited volume um, about the CICRC's intervention in Algeria that I suddenly kind of saw the the sweep and the stakes of the history of this organization as an organization. Because um, I kind of thought, oh, this is Cold War stuff, I can't do it. Um, and then once decolonization came into the picture, and once I started thinking about the CICRC as an institution and as a kind of activist experiment with bearing witness um, and not simply um, as it stopped framing the project simply in terms of things that Rousset had written, um, but began thinking about the the organization institutionally. Um, that was when I sort of realized that there was a book, um, and that there was a book that would let me grapple with a lot of questions that I cared about a lot. Um, and so, um, so I wrote the book. Uh, I kind of started over with my research um, at that point. Um, well, well after graduate school. Right. I mean, there's so much to, to pick up on there. Just something that's really striking is that it you the story sort of sits across a couple of different historiographical shifts, yeah. right, as I'm sure you know. Uh, just two of them being, um, you know, the, the analogous shift in considering institutional or national histories inside of kind of more perhaps traditional European historiography as being part and parcel of a story of global decolonization uh, right. and the opposite or, or analogous story being something like Algeria being a part of European history kind of explicitly and sometimes you know that, right. that gesture is made rather polemically right <laughs> so so was, what has the response been like to your work then especially as it kind of cuts across these questions that are sometimes 
um, sequestered in, in these particular historiographies, because obviously the politics of mashing all of that together are also incredibly stark. How, how have you found the response to, to that kind of uh, crisscrossing? Yeah. Um, so the response to the book so far has been really, uh, you know, really positive. Um, it has only been out for a couple of months. Um, it came out in March, uh, late, late March. Um, and so, um, so I have had, you know, a lot of opportunities to engage with, um, with people about the ideas in the book over recent years um, in conference presentations and, and so forth. Um, and I've given some talks about the book since it's been out. Um, but, um, but the thing that has been exciting for me is seeing that it does seem to engage, it, it does seem to be engaging scholars across those fields, um, kind of as you, as you indicate, um, because it is intervening in these sort of different historiographies, right? So in recent months, you know, I've done, like, I've done a webinar on memory in post-war France, um, and that was entirely, like, for an audience of people who consider themselves French historians that are interested in legacies of World War II's violence in France as such. Um, and then, like, I met you at a conference on global decolonization. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I've had a chance to to kind of see some of the ways that the book is cutting across fields as as I hoped it would, um, and that is really exciting for me. The other thing that's exciting is that um, I think it's I, I hope um, that even some um, non-academic audiences seem to be picking up on it. Um, I was really excited that the book got reviewed in the Chicago Tribune. Um, I think that it's a history that, um, even though it's dealing with kind of weighty stuff, um, is is also accessible in various ways because it's a story um, about a group of people. Uh, and so, um, so I hope that that also sort of continues. We'll see. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's probably, I, I don't know, was that a surprise? Uh, that absolutely. It, okay. <laughs> yes. Um, so I guess that, that makes me wonder then how writing this and, and keeping that response in mind, both from, you know, so-called popular audiences as well as people across these fields um, has maybe shifted or maybe solidified how you approach the method of, of intellectual history because you refer to it ex explicitly as an intellectual history and an intellectual history of, of this French institution. Um, but as you point out, I mean, it has so much to do with histories of violence, histories of memory, um, of the camp itself, of you know, what you call these sort of visceral experiences that really foreground uh, the relationship that your actors have to the experience in the camp. What, what do you do with sort of intellectual history and the way that we're, we're, we're trained to do that work uh, with all of these other stakes having emerged along the way? I, I mean, ha has it changed yeah. how you do your work? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think I... I guess there's a few a few ways to, to tackle that. Um, I have always had a pretty um, eclectic approach to you know whose ideas um, I, I am writing about. Um, so in my dissertation, which is about the problem of, of political violence in post-war France, you know, there's a chapter about Merleau-Ponty, uh, but there then is another chapter about the Minister of the Interior um, and how he approaches a set of, of railroad worker strikes. Um, 
you know, I've published articles about Fanon and Sartre, but I've also I've published an article about Fox movie tone newsreel footage. Um, so that's always been a kind of feature of my work. And, and, and as well, I think I have always tried to, um, in writing about problems like violence, uh, to sort of hold together a couple different meanings of, of how to think about those as a problem, like that violence in post-war France wasn't just a problem in that it was an interesting thing to think about, um, in that it was a, you know, a problematique, uh, for Mm -hmm. intellectuals, um, but also that it was a, a problem, um, in terms of, um, of the ongoing existence of intense levels of, of violence, um, of, you know, violence as, as practice, um, and as, as lived reality. Um, so, so that is not something that is sort of new for me with this book. Um, neither is, is the kind of idea of, of approaching intellectuals as political actors. Um, what I would say shifted for me with, with this project, um, has been that it did push that in much more global directions um, for me. You know, my so my work has always been um, like archival um, and informed by by a pretty eclectic basis of, of texts. But I realized immediately when I decided to tell this story um, that to, to make sense of this history, it, it couldn't just be French sources, right? It moved me toward thinking much more in terms of transnational networks and contexts um and um and i think that that's a space that i'm actually going to now remain in um because that's that's i've realized that that's the space that the actors i'm interested in tend to occupy um so um yeah so i mean you know i'm not i i i think the one other thing i would say in terms of of method is that um, the book the book is a narrative, um, and there are I, I I'm not I'm in, I'm not interested in launching a defense of narrative as such. Um, I think that there's lots of wonderful uh, intellectual and other sorts of history that is not narrative at all. Um, but I did find that for the kinds of things I was trying to get at in this work, and I think just for me in general and sort of the way that my my brain works, um, narrative proved really helpful. Um, I, I think that it was um, it was an approach that made sense. I, I always thought about these actors in terms of a, a story that I wanted to tell about them and about their ideas um, and um, and change over time was a key sort of driving element of that. Um, and so, um, so again, I'm not suggesting an kind of intrinsic superiority to narrative history, anything like that. Uh, but this is, the, it is what worked for me with this book. And I suspect what will continue to work for me. Um, it seems to be the vehicle for the kind of histories that I, I like telling. Mm-hmm. And I guess then the role of place becomes um, really interesting in, in sort of reading works like yours, because as you said, you know, your actors themselves are, are both interested and implicated in these transnational networks and the, and the, pardon me, the ideas that they're interested in are necessarily global because I mean, they, they are universal or universalizing. Um, 
And so I guess I'm wondering what you did with the place of Frenchness for your actors or the place of Europeanness for your actors. You've referred to these a couple of times as sort of European debates. Um, So I guess what are the stakes then of the fact that this is on the one hand, this a very precisely French story. On the other hand, this is about a kind of European catastrophe. It's about a global catastrophe. I mean, it seems like one has to do a fair bit of kind of toggling between those registers. And then when one is thinking about, you know, these, these concepts that are framed as universal, both by your actors and, and by your colleagues, um, something like violence, something like memory, something like, uh, kind of an, a violence that cannot be transcend or uh, that, that cannot be transcended by by thought. You know, if these are the stakes, then then what are we doing with something like the category of France or the category of of Frenchness? Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, there's there's a lot there. Um, I'll just say one thing first, which is that um, I. Um, I want to be careful about the way that I'm using the language of the global. Um, I'm not at all claiming to be practicing global intellectual history, um, right? My actors are Europeans, right? Um, and um, and I'm not um, I'm not telling a story about uh, you know a genuinely global exchange of of ideas um, or you know global networks of of intellectual. Um, uh, discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm doing is writing about largely French people, um, Europeans, who are trying to intervene in the real and imagined landscape of global politics. Um, but um, but I do think that that's a significantly different kind of project than, than attempting to forge a global intellectual history or to, to take a global turn in intellectual history, and that's not what I'm up to. Um, I really, um, I really worked a lot in writing the book about how to toggle between, right, telling this as a French story and then acknowledging and framing its broader European aspects um, and its broader, I guess, Western aspects, because there are some American actors in the story who are, are very, very important pieces of the puzzle. Um, in narrative terms, I ended up dealing with this by beginning the book in France, right? Um, right? Because I think that there are particularities to the way that World War II's violence was experienced and the aftermath of World War II is experienced um, in France that, um, and simply the fact that the CICRC was founded by French people, um, that I, I had to start the story there. Um, once the CICRC exists, uh, and once the French have invited fellow Western Europeans to join them, um, my actors become a, a transnational European set, Western European set of actors on the surface of the organization um, in terms of its formal membership, um, not from everywhere in Western Europe, but from places in Western Europe that experienced deportation in ways that makes this project make sense uh, within the the space of their sort of national memory cultures. Um, And then behind the scenes, you know, secretly, uh, there are a number of Americans who are involved uh, liaising the group to CIA money and providing support. Um, And so it also, the project also internationalizes uh, as the group is founded in ways that um, are not revealed in the formal membership roles. 
And then in many ways, towards the end of the book, um, it becomes a French story again, right? Because the Algerian war cannot, in some ways, you know, it can occupy a kind of narrative space of here comes decolonization. Um, And in other ways, it's a very particular French, Franco-Algerian story uh, that does not just map onto global decolonization as such. Um, It is, there are particularities to the violence of Algeria um, that have to be explained in terms of of French imperial history um, and not just through sort of generic language of decolonization. So all of this was really sort of hard to juggle. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was particularly hard to juggle because the key sort of argument that the book is is making um, has to do with the fragility of my actors' claims about the universality of their categories, right? Right. Um, So, you know, I'm writing about people who claim that they have had an experience whose nature is so universal, um, suffering, you know, the sort of limit case suffering that gives them an authority of experience that allows them to immediately go into any space, go into China, right, go into Tunisia, um, go into Greece, and and understand on an elemental level, um, identify with the suffering of victims in those spaces. And my book is largely geared towards showing that that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I've had to be doubly thoughtful, I think, myself um, about sort of not reproducing uh, some of those moves that they make, Um, not assuming that, you know, forms of violence endemic to mid 20th century Europe, you know, for example, um, give us conceptual tools to understand violence in other times and places um, and so on. And so, yeah, so it's a great question. There's, there's a lot to sort of unpack there. Um, but, uh, but those are sort of some of my thoughts in response. Yeah, no, I, and I think that part of why I'm able to ask that question is I think your book does a great job of sort of following, you know, following what you've found in these archives and being precise about when stakes or questions or universalizing or particularizing moves are your actors and when when that comes from the narrative itself. Mm. Um, so I wondered to to that end, if you could tell us a little bit about how your story comes to an end. You've, you've said a couple of times that, you know, these gestures that they make or these, um, these texts that they write or these uh, tactics of theirs just just end up not working, and and it's Algeria that becomes the sticking point. Uh, what exactly are they trying to do in Algeria? Yeah, so um, so the Franco-Algerian War uh, begins in 1954, um, and the CICRC's members um, are have all kinds of positions on. French imperialism writ large and on Algeria in particular. Um, they, uh, this is a group that has kind of shared ideological anti-communism, but decolonization really scrambles ideological alliances. It sort of, it turns out that just because, you know, um, a, a Trotskyist and, uh, Catholic conservative both hate the USSR does not mean at all uh, that they are going to have similar political responses to um, 
the the fight going on um, in Algeria. Uh, and the CICRC has, throughout its life, it's been sort of premised on this lie, essentially, um, that it is an apolitical organization, that it is only driven by, by concern about human suffering. The Algerian war just sort of immediately um, exposes that lie, right? Um, as soon as David Rousset starts insisting uh, that the group needs to investigate the forms of internment that um, France is engaged in in Algeria, uh, members of the group who are pro-continued French presence in Algeria start quitting. Um, they say, you know, hey, I thought that what we were really doing here is, is targeting, you know, the, communi- the communists. Uh, this, this isn't what I signed up for. Um, this is bad for France. Um, and Rousset kind of says, oh, well, we, we profess a set of universal values. We've got to investigate anywhere that problematic internment conditions are arising. One of the points I try to make in the book is that this is not because, you know, Rousset is truly a universalist and and these other guys are not. Um, he just has different politics uh, around colonialism. He's, he's an anti-colonialist um, in ways that for him mesh perfectly with his Cold War politics. You know, he's an anti-colonialist in the same way that the leaders of the AFL um, are, are anti-colonialists. So... Um, so the group starts splintering. Um, Rousset pushes ahead. They go to investigate in Algeria anyway. Um, in 1957, this is sort of at the height of the Battle of Algiers, a, a contingent of CICRC representatives go to French Algeria. They tour around. Um, they're given kind of remarkable levels of access, really. Um, they go to a number of they, they go to 25 sites. Um, most of them are civilian-run internment camps, military-run uh, triage and transit camps. Um, and they try to then write up their findings. Um, and it goes really poorly. <laughs> uh, they have a lot of trouble fitting the Algerian camps into the conceptual categories that have been bequeathed to them by their experience in the Nazi camps. Um, this, this isn't surprising from a kind of historian's perspective. France is engaged in its own distinctive forms of, of violence in Algeria um, that are part of a sort of long durée history of colonial internment and are also part of the logics of fighting a, a counterinsurgency war. Um, French internment in Algeria doesn't look like Buchenwald. It doesn't look like Auschwitz. But the catch is that that doesn't mean it's okay. Um, there, there are still terrible, terrible problems with the internment system. And there are terrible forms of fi- violence that France is engaging in that's not actually happening in those internment camps. They're happening before bodies end up in them. So the CICRC sort of can't figure out how to process this because their moral conceptual vocabulary has always been binary. Um, and meanwhile, the Americans are very upset uh, that Rousset has pushed ahead with the investigation. They have not wanted to bother France about internment. So the CIA pulls funding for the group. The anti-colonialist members are quitting the group. Or Sorry, the pro-colonialist members are quitting the group because they're upset the investigation happened. And then the anti-colonialist members start to peel out of the group as well um, because they see that asking the question of, is it Buchenwald, is not a productive response, is not a productive politics um, around French violence in Algeria. 
um, they they see the ways in which their work is being instrumentalized by uh, apologists for the French military and for torture, um, and it horrifies them. And so the project kind of falls apart. It shatters this earlier anti-totalitarian consensus about what the Nazi camps meant and what their lessons were going forward. And it makes very clear that there might not be any lessons, um, right? There might just be <laughs> new forms of violence and new forms of suffering and, and others who one doesn't identify with, but who still have to be responded to as, as suffering others. Um, and so, um, so Algeria, the Algerian war breaks the group. It kind of stumbles on uh, for a couple more years um, after this moment of crisis, um, but it, uh, it, it never reemerges um, as a, a functioning organization. Right, and, and it seems like part of what's going on is that a mismatch maybe is not the right word, but but mismatch of conceptual categories and things that are processed as empirical realities or something that's like right. a material reality. And th- that's fascinating because that's happening in your story. And it's also part of the conversation in in the historiography or kind of among our colleagues about what to do. You know, the, the charge of anachronism is sometimes levied, etc. So Right. How, how do you approach that as an intellectual historian, then, if you're seeing something that has a name uh, and that has a useful name, uh, but there is kind of a mismatch on, on all these registers, uh, particularly between, you know, if, if you're talking across languages, uh, if you're talking across sets of actors with these incredibly entrenched politics, and then yeah. now, I mean, e- even as something as simple as calling this a French imperial history versus a history of decolonization versus a history of violence. Yeah. I mean, I, I just kind of wanted to invite your thoughts on that because it's something that I, I think about as well, and I'm sure that you do too. Yeah, um, it's a great question. I actually think that mismatch is is the right word. I mean, for me, one of the most striking things to kind of put together in the archives is the real distress of the CICRC investigators as they're touring the Algerian internment camps and they sort of have their protocols, like they're supposed to be asking about, you know, how often the dentist comes. Um, And then they are meeting with camp inmates who are like, let me show you my burns and scars from when I was tortured before I got to this camp. This camp is fine. Who cares about this camp? Uh, The investigators can't, they can't square even the sort of spatial mismatch between their ideas about where and how violence is supposed to happen with the different formation of of violence that's happening on the ground in Algeria. And I think this goes back to our earlier um, exchange about, you know, the the necessity of thinking about violence, not just as a, as a problematique, uh, but, but as a set of practices. Um, A lot of the literature on, um, French memory, there, there's there's a substantial literature on the French memory of World War II's violence during the Algerian War. Um, much of it by literary scholars, some of it by historians, and much of it intensely sort of celebratory of the role that memory played um, in spurring on French uh, the French anti-Algerian war movement, right? So there's a book, for example, um, called The Memory of Resistance. Uh, and that's the title of this kind of landmark book um, about the history of, of French 
um, metropolitan opposition to the Algerian War. Um, Michael Rothberg's um, multi-directional memory makes kind of similar um, points. It's a very important work uh, about you know the kind of mutual invocation of um, Holocaust memory and memory, and, and then the the fight for justice uh, during the Algerian War. Um, but I think what a lot of that work misses, and one thing that I tried to do, and one reason that you know even though I'm writing this intellectual history, I ended up in a lot of state archives, um, is that I, I don't think. Um, that enough attention has kind of been paid to the actual forms of violence that France is engaged in in Algeria, um, which again, just unfortunately, they, they don't look like Nazi violence. Um, and so it's a really effective rhetorical strategy for some people at some points um, to, um, you know, draw that parallel, for the actors themselves to draw that parallel. Um, in order to better condemn French acts to say, hey, you're acting like the Gestapo torturing people, right? Um, but I think historians need to be really careful. Um, we, we, are not, we are not activists trying to draw that parallel. We are actually trying to make sense of the history. And so one thing that the CICRC story sort of reveals, I think, is the, the limits, the sharp limits of, of assuming um, that you know um these things map onto one another um so yeah um i don't know um i i mean i think your broader question is about sort of attentiveness to language um uh and i think that that's a part of the story um and you know certainly something that that i had to be really careful about in writing the book and language about you know concentration camps versus internment camps, the camp. Um, but I largely, I largely tried to focus on my actors categories and, um, on paying a lot of attention to what those distinctions meant to, to them. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know if there's something you want to repose, uh, that I'm kind of missing here. Um, or if that answers what you were asking. No, absolutely. That that definitely answers it, especially because these are at once conceptual questions as well as kind of questions of method and and questions of of writing. I think that that lays yeah. out. I think a lot of a lot of what I was thinking about, um, especially towards the end when you were talking about kind of working in in state archives. What what are we to do? I guess. I mean, you, you've answered this in your book by just kind of showing a really good example of it. But how would you suggest people? like myself, who are sort of in the middle of being trained as, as historians of, of ideas and intellectual movements, um, what are we to do when something like the CIA rears its head or the state, capital S, rears its head? What are we to do with ideas then? Because I think that sometimes, this is a straw man, so forgive me, but sometimes the tendency is to say, well, yeah. you know, these people are puppets, their ideas yeah. don't matter because this is just money moving around yeah. or this is, you know state power moving around, or this is about foreign policy, or this is about brute force. What do we do with ideas in that space? And then what do we do when intellectuals are kind of talking to each other, but we know very well that there are kind of structures and power and violence rippling outward from the things that people are, are writing to each other. I mean, of course, these are kind of, this is maybe a, a, a false binary, obviously, as your book has shown, you can very effectively do the thing that is neither of those things. But kind of what, what are we to do with that problem when we sit down to, to make sense of something? Yeah, um, no, it's, 
Uh, it's a huge question, and I think um, you know one that um, is is a challenge in writing about lots of eras, eras but it's a particular problem um, for historians who work on the Cold War moment, right? Um, and um, who get the response. I think quite often the sort of reductive response of like, like, is this just CIA stuff? Um, and uh, can we just sort of um, treat it uh, in strategic terms or dismiss it as puppetry? Like, why should the ideas matter if we understand that they're being wielded in these strategic ways? Um, I think that lots of people have been doing great work um, recently to uh, to provide much more nuanced responses to that, you know, people like Patrick Iber um, and his work on on uh, the Congress for Cultural Freedom and the Cold War in Latin America. Um, like Patrick, you know, I'm, I'm interested in this kind of dynamic relationship between ideas and the global political contexts in which they emerge and they evolve um, and they are disseminated. Um, and I think that, you know, um, in my in my book on the CICRC, um, there there were uh, kind of it was a tricky needle to thread, right? Um, mm -hmm. There are people, Tony Jutt, for example, who sort of argue for the total immateriality of where the CIA money is coming from. Um, Jutt says in post-war, you know, sort of, who cares? These people would have been anti-communists anyway. Um, the CIA didn't make them anti-communists. It didn't give them their ideas. Uh, we, we can look at their projects for their own sake. Um, and then there are you know, uh, lots of histories of organizations like the Congress for Cultural Freedom that treat the ideas as absolutely immaterial, um, and the real story is where the money came from. Um, I'm not interested, I wasn't interested in either of those approaches, and I think, you know, maybe an anecdote kind of might express this best. Um, Rousset's initial appeal, calling on survivors of the, the Nazi camps, political survivors of the Nazi camps, to um, to investigate the Soviet Gulag, the CICRC began um, with this kind of front page newspaper appeal that Rousset wrote um, in the Figaro Littéraire in 1949, um, and it was a bombshell. It sort of exploded not only in France uh, but also in other places across Western Europe. Um, it caused schisms in survivors' organizations. It drew responses from you know every intellectual in the who's who, right? Sartre responded to it four times um, by, by 1960. Um, Camus got involved, you know, it, it, it was um, it was a very, very, very big deal. Um, the Americans sort of watching this unfold thought, oh great, let's translate this into English and publish it in America. And they did. Um, they created a sort of translated version of Rousset's appeal and it felt utterly flat. Uh, in the American context, um, because his sort of visceral language about the key experience of World War II, um, the key lesson of memory having been um, this limit case experience of suffering in the camps, um, it, it didn't mean anything to American audiences. And so, you know, all of the ink that's been spilled over the appeal and previous accounts of it as this kind of Cold War set piece in France um, 
I think overlooks the fact that Rousset was doing very particular things about memory and and language um, that, you know, yes, it was a Cold War move. Um, Yes, it was utterly strategic. Um, And at the same time, it's conceptual vocabulary. Like, even if we want to understand how it works strategically, we have to pay attention to the ideas. This kind of fundamental concept of the survivor as witness um, and this fundamental concept of the concentrationary universe as a particular limit case sort of human evil, um, those ideas mattered in how this unfolded, um, even if you want the story to be kind of one about Cold War gamesmanship. Um, the, the strategy only worked because those conceptual vocabularies were meaningful uh, to readers and, and listeners. Um, in places in Western Europe, like France, that had experienced deportation. Um, and so um, so that's not, you know, I, I, <laughs> that's hardly sort of advice uh, for, for the rising graduate student. Um, but I do think, you know, I, I think that I have been lucky in that it, ways I, I, I've never sort of had to approach these problems in the abstract. I've always been telling stories about people. Um, and so I've had to figure out kind of, you know, um, what, um, how to tell their story, um, what pieces of the picture matters. Um, they're acting in a real world with real constraints and consequences. Um, of course, I'm going to have to work with state archives um, to make sense of their journey to Algeria, for example. Um, of course, you know, I'm going to have to... Um, try to figure out everything I can about where the money is coming from. Um, and at the same time, none of it makes sense without taking them seriously as intellectuals um, and, and paying attention to their ideas. So I don't, I don't know that that um, applies across um, other people's work and other people's projects, but I think it's, you know, it's a really, it's really difficult terrain to negotiate um, because um you one one doesn't want to be reductionist of the ideas, um, and and yet um, where the money comes from does matter, and it matters very much. Um, it's it, it, it's um, I, I I think that you know um, it would be it it, it would be a dishonest telling um, of this group's story to not have um, put together all of those pieces about the institutional and and governmental um, sides of of the sort of saga of how the group rose and how it fell. So, yeah, again, I'm not sure, (laughs) not sure how useful that is for anybody else, uh, but that's, that's how I've tried to approach it. No, I, I think that's incredibly useful, especially um, thinking about, you know, as, as you've told us about this project, kind of from conception in a, in a graduate seminar to the archive, to a writing problem, to thinking about how people respond to it. I think you've, you know, also just told us the story of how you put together a project like this in a, in a really helpful way. Um, and we're, we're coming to the end of our time, but I just wanted to take a second to thank you for, for sitting down with me um, and so kind of patiently talking me through so many of the questions that I had about your book and, and for laying out the stakes and, and, and the story so vividly. Um, I'm sure that this will kind of continue to be an exemplar for people 
but like myself, but also kind of other, like more advanced colleagues in the field who are trying to think across um, these these conversations that are sometimes held apart. But I think as we've seen it at you know conferences and and kind of the last decade or more of work, uh, I think are much more productive when when they're held in the same in the same room or with with people yeah. who care about these same stakes for sure. Um, so thank you so much. This was really helpful and and, and really um, yeah a lot of fun to, to talk about. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. So um, yeah, take care.